Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. When Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20 Well, good morning, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> this is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. And it's a pleasure to be back in studio again. Uh, I am Ryan Aris. I'm joined by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. Mm. And we've got a, a special guest with us this week that I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment. First, I'm going to throw it over to Nate for a couple of housekeeping announcements. Great. Yeah, well, we're right smack in the middle of our Worldview Youth Academy training program. And uh, we've got a really uh, enthusiastic and excited group of teens with us and uh Things are going very well. We've got a packed house, and uh, we'd certainly appreciate your prayers for all of these young people uh, as we do our very best uh, to equip them to face some of the cultural challenges uh, in front of them today. And uh, we're, we're doing this program at our facility uh, on Lake Erie in, in southern Ontario, and it's a fantastic spot. And mm. uh, we're actually going to be using this facility again uh, in the fall for our very first uh, program for a general audience called Christianity and Culture Colloquium. So we're looking forward to that uh, happening this fall. It's happening October 24th to the 27th. And yeah, we've had general audience conferences in the past, many yeah. of them with our Mission day, of God conferences. Events. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But this is going to be the first multi-day, multi-day stay with us, stay on, on site uh, with our staff and faculty throughout the program. Um, the first time we've done that for, for a general audience. So we're very excited about that. And uh, the program is going to consist of foundational training and worldview apologetics and, uh, and reformational philosophy. And uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to that program. So if you're interested, you can head to our website, EzraInstitute.com, and you can register for that program now. Awesome. Excellent. And who can come? Is that... Uh Everybody, any uh, adults, I adults, think that's it. Adults, adult, adult learning center. That's right. That's right. All right. Yeah. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Ezrainstitute.com. Uh, go and register, and we'll see you in October. Mm-hmm. Now back to the show. Our uh, our very special guest today is Dale Partridge. Dale, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And Dale, I'll read out uh, quickly here is pastor at Reformation Fellowship Church in Sedona, Arizona. He is the founder at relearn.org, as well as president of Reformation Seminary, which is a, uh, a seminary with a, uh, a special emphasis or a special angle on training pastors for uh, leading and planting house churches. And he also, he hosts the Real Christianity podcast that uh, you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. And uh, if you, uh, if you're to drive from St. Catharines to Toronto here in Southern Ontario, you can listen to an episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation 
smack on the back of <laughs> a podcast for real Christianity, <laughs> and you'll be pulling into the driveway as that uh, that second podcast is concluding. Perfect. You, work, you worked that all out, did you? <laughs> well done. <laughs> that's an educational drive, Ryan. That's, that's right. Yeah. And uh, if you have downtime, you can uh, you can get into you know, if you have traffic, you can get into a third episode. <laughs> but that's uh, anyway. We uh, I know that we usually measure things uh, with the metric system here. I know that you guys down there do anything but. But uh, that's uh, that's a new metric that uh, that all of you can <laughs> can use. Anyway, Dale, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to chat. So, Dale, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, we had been talking about earlier, and the uh, the passage of scripture that we led off with, is the very well known Great Commission, and this is something that uh, you, this uh, that has been very dear to your heart, uh, very uh, very high on your list, and so, uh, as in an animating principle for your ministry. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that ministry is uh, and what the uh, what the Great Commission, how the Great Commission activates and inspires and motivates you? Yeah, so the Great Commission is obviously the mission of the church. Uh, we often can get confused and with other focuses of the church, which the church has many purposes in, in the world and, and work to do in the world. But the Great Commission really is, I, I would call, the front and the tip of the spear of the church's work. It's the beginning. Uh, it's not the end, uh, but it is the beginning of that journey. And, you know, we have a problem in the West, especially. The current statistics say that less than 90%, or sorry, less than 10% of Christians will share the gospel with one person per year. That means 90% of Western Christians aren't engaging in Great Commission ministry. Uh, there was a poll that came out from Barna not too long ago that uh, it was over 60%, I believe, of Christians don't even know the phrase, the Great Commission. Uh, they can't identify what that means. And so uh, there's obviously a, a theological, biblical, and gospel illiteracy that's going on in the West that needs to be addressed. And so my heart and passion has been creating what I call gospel fluency, the ability to communicate the gospel uh, clearly, um, eloquently, uh, boldly. The reality is, is that a lot of Christians um, are trying to understand gospel mechanics. Um, my experience, guys, is this, is that if you want to be able to have gospel fluency, it's really a byproduct of sound doctrine and sound theology. And so we don't want to create evangelists that have scripts that go out there and preach the gospel because they have a script, which was basically 1980s, 1990s, you know, early 2000s Christianity, you know, with everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus, you know, here, here pray the sinner's prayer, or pray this prayer, and follow my direction. Uh, we don't want to script it, especially in just kind of one-on-one -on -one evangelism. It's a byproduct of sound doctrine of theology, meaning that when you know the gospel doctrines, when you understand salvation, when you understand the work of the cross, you can communicate it in every circumstance, in every situation, uniquely to that individual and to that discussion. And, and that's a really important uh, metric that I try focusing on in our ministry is creating sound doctrine, sound theology, sound biblical uh, understanding so that we can communicate the gospel clearly, eloquently, and boldly. And so 
one of the big problems that we saw, and guys, you know, I'm a problem solver. Before I was in ministry, I was in the business world for about 15 years. And one of the things I learned as an entrepreneur is that our job is to solve problems. Now, the best problems to solve are urgent, required, and painful problems. And not every one of the problems in the world meet those criteria. Uh, there's a reason that toilet paper continues to be a great seller, right? Is that it's, it's solving an urgent, required, and painful problem for humans. And the reality is, is that when you think about the gospel, the great commission for the church, it's an urgent, required, and painful problem for many people. They're not sharing the gospel. They feel guilty about it. They want to get engaged with it. They don't know how. They don't know where to begin. And so we, we tried to figure out what was happening. What was the cause? What were the, the blocks involved in uh, preventing Christians from sharing the gospel? And so we, we really narrowed it down to three things. The first thing was uh, people were uh, afraid of the the, they're basically the fear of rejection. They're afraid of being rejected, uh, the fear of man, uh, worried about offending somebody. Because I'm not talking about a fuzzy gospel. I'm talking about a bad news, good news gospel. And we know the good news is only good because the bad news is so bad. And therefore, we need to preach the bad news so that the good news can, can really stick. And so uh, when you preach a bad news, good news gospel, in the sense that you're actually telling people that they've uh, sinned against a holy God, they're under his wrath, and without repentance and trust in Christ alone, they're going to hell. That bad news makes the good news so good, but that gospel is offensive to the flesh. And uh, people are afraid of offending people and of the backlash and the persecution that might come as a result. The second reason that people are, are uh, not sharing the gospel is they don't feel like they're able to eloquently, accurately present the gospel. This is, again, gets back to gospel fluency. This gets back to a deeper problem with a lack of expository preaching in the church, a lack of understanding of the gospel mechanics so that you can communicate it clearly, a lack of catechisms for the children uh, of this generation and the previous generations, uh, because we, we just don't know the basics of, of gospel truth. The third reason is that we're afraid of the apologetic questions that come as a result of a gospel proclamation, uh, moral relativism, or why is there so much suffering in the world, and how can a good God allow these things to happen, uh, the dinosaurs, the Big Bang Theory, whatever might come up. We, we don't feel prepared for those three things. So you get those, those three issues, right? The fear uh, of rejection, the lack of, of communication, eloquent of the, the gospel, and then the apologetic questions. You get a pretty thick wall uh, that causes many people in the church today to not share the gospel with anyone. And so what we've done, as you guys know, in the church is that we've outsourced our duty to uh, present the gospel to the pastor. So what we do instead is we invite people to church and let the pastor do it for us. Uh, instead of taking those organic spirit-led promptings of, hey, there's an opportunity, there's a moment, the Lord you know, pitches a softball moment to you. Um, and we don't take those things up again because of those three reasons. So our ministry basically, and I'll stop talking so you guys can banter back and forth with me, but our ministry went at it and go, we want to solve this big problem or at least contribute to the solution to this problem. And that's really the, the launch of what we'll talk about hopefully in a bit is mailthegospel.org. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you talk about um, uh, Dale about the um, uh, the people not actually being particularly fluent 
in the 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 nature of the gospel that whole good news bad news thing um as well as uh, the fact that it seems that much of the church is uh we we present the gospel in sound bites we and it feels at times as though we're working much of the church is working on the guttering of the house when there's a massive crack in the foundation and we've not got our priorities straight in really organizing and understanding what is the nature and meaning of the gospel of the kingdom and and how do we uh how do we present it um in terms of that um good news uh bad news piece that's been something that's been a a, a concern to me for for a long time mm-hmm. uh the neglect of the preaching of god's law uh which was so much uh, uh so central uh to an evangelical understanding of the gospel historically and in a sort of relativistic age and a and an increasingly immoral uh culture uh it's the uh you know when we, i would not know sin says paul but by the law and in order to preach the god the, the good news we need to present people with the bad news uh, you, what to what extent do you think that the our uh, our ignorance um you know when paul in first timothy for example one talks about the the law of god he 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 talks about it being an aspect of the glorious gospel uh, of of God that has been entrusted to him. To what extent do you think our neglect of um, God's law and actually a willingness to speak about God's righteousness and justice and his standards has actually contributed to uh, a lack of gospel fluency, our, our inability to be effective in presenting the, the, the good news of redemption in Christ? Yeah, so we have essentially... Uh, obviously a lack of theology proper, understanding a sovereign God, understanding a holy God, um, uh, you know, understanding a God of justice, understanding essentially the characteristics of who God is in their purest form. Um, we, we lack that, and, and which leads itself to a lack of the fear of God. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point, uh, the reverential position that we see who God is in comparison to who we are. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, I'm in the middle right now of working on a kid's gospel-centered catechism, uh, and I'm, it's, I'm modeling it off basically between the Heidelberg and the Westminster, and I'm getting a chance to get back at these catechisms, and it's shocking to me how heavy they emphasize the law. Uh, the children that were raised on these catechisms understood to detail uh, the law, the purpose of each law, their obvious inability to keep it, their their you know um, their absolute need for an alien righteousness because of their inability to uh, sustain obedience to that law, um, and we lack that in in great uh, in great force today. So we need yes, uh, it's the bad news. It's that law that's so heavy. Uh, that is unable to be fulfilled perfectly, but also should be kept uh, through obedience and gratitude as a believer. And so it's this balance of the law of God is a beautiful thing. It's the thing that, that condemns me without Christ. And it's also the thing that motivates me in Christ. And, and that balance, I think, is, is what needs to be restored at the footing of gospel education today. There's another thing you touched on that struck me um, that is a there's something that we speak about as a ministry too, which is the the risk, the danger of the churchification of the gospel of the kingdom. 
so that uh, we expect almost the institutional church officers to actually carry out the role of witness and evangelism on our behalf. Um, like so many things now, we've sort of outsourced the responsibility of the Christian as a member of God's kingdom people, God's mi people on mission. And we've almost burdened the pastor uh, with the responsibility of saying, well, you're the professional, you're the paid professional, so you're going to do the evangelism for us um, because, because we have churchified the faith to the extent that we expect the institutional organs of the church to do it all for us. To what extent does that impact um, does that resonate? Does that, do you think this is, this is something of yeah. a part of the problem? So, you know, I'm a bit of an odd duck when it comes to uh, ecclesiology, right? As I'm a, I'm a biblical house church planter and pastor. I've been doing it for almost a decade now. I love the traditional church. Uh, I'm not an anti-traditional church. I'm not uh, in any sort of elitist mentality. Um, and so I'm, I'm for the traditional church. However, uh, I've seen in my own experience the fruitfulness of a smaller gathering, uh, which I, I would say, again, has a, you know, an early church passion with Reformation doctrine, with a kingdom perspective. Um, and when, for example, in a house church that, you know, that would be in our network, we really teach individuals gospel fluency from the ground up. We expect that the kids are catechized. We expect that uh, individuals to become members can communicate the gospel clearly. I don't believe that you could be saved if you can't communicate the gospel. Um, and so there's, there's uh, a gospel fluency at the first uh, footing for uh, our, our communities. The second thing is when, for example, a, a gentleman who is in our church recently uh, he plays pickleball and he, he was at the pickleball courts and he said he met an individual who uh, was asking him questions about the gospel um, and he wanted to have him just introduce him to me. And I said, hey man, you know the gospel, get a chance to uh, share the gospel with him, have a conversation with him, um, disciple him in, in truth, um, uh, ha have that discussion. A and if the guy converts, uh, if the guy wants a deeper discussion that you feel it's more theological beyond your, your scope, uh, then yeah, we can do that. But I'm really pushing him to have that discussion, to share the gospel, to, to build that evangelistic culture in his life. Uh, if that person comes to faith or or is uh, wanting to be um, uh, have deeper discussion, then yeah, we can go there. But in my experience, again, when I see in the in the early church, or when I see in even like um, an underground church concept around the world, is we have individual members that are sharing the gospel. These people are being converted. They're bringing them to the church as believers, not as as people who are in maybe being drawn, but they're actually as believers, they're being baptized by uh, the elders of those congregations and then being members of, of that church. And so again, I think that's a more natural, it's a more engaging uh, congregational perspective and it's been very fruitful. So all of the members in our church are expected to be able to communicate the gospel. And I would say it actually happens quite regularly um, and so it is, it's something that we cannot outsource any longer. An institutionalized church does that because we love programs. You know, the reason we have these things, Joe, is we, we have them because we like them. Uh, the church is the way it is because we like it that way. Uh, it's actually a part of the flesh. I mean, we like the ability to, to kind of land in the back seat not say anything, have audience Christianity or inactive spectator Christianity, and then walk out. We have it because we like it. The problem is, is that it's really, 
um, passive Christianity. It's not invasive Christianity. It's not um, uh, engaged Christianity with the culture. And so it, it really doesn't train individuals to become um, kingdom representatives in culture. Um, and so th that's absolutely the uh, part of the shift that I'm, I'm trying to shepherd here locally. And that is a significant shift because mm -hmm. when you think about the, you know, the, especially the eighties and nineties, and then even the early two thousands to a degree, the, the big move was towards the church Institute and the gathered congregation becoming seeker sensitive, right? It was all mm -hmm. about how can you make your gathered worship as appealing as possible, as non-offensive, non-threatening as possible to the unbeliever. We lost the reality that actually the gathering of the people of God for word and sacrament is actually primarily for Christians to be taught yes. and equipped and uh, sent out in terms of the purposes of the kingdom. It's not uh, there to be a, a, to, to try and entertain non-believers. And that we've seen actually the radical failure of that whole model uh, in terms of retention of people in the life of the church, that somehow the, our worship as a gathered congregation is to be directed and geared towards trying to please or entertain or um, somehow ingratiate ourselves upon unbelievers. It's mm -hmm. primarily for the Christian. Yeah, and this is absolutely, it's stealing the words of Jesus where he says, I will build my church. And it's saying, we will build the church. And it absolutely is utterly failing. Um, and we have so many Christians uh, in the church today that are, are finally starting to see that. And they're realizing that, hey, how about instead of trying to create altar call Christianity, pulling the, the garbage from the Finney generation of the 1800s into even the Billy Graham world, um, we are finally realizing, let's just preach the gospel faithfully. And if people convert, they'll stay. And if they don't, they'll leave. And so, um, yeah, you, you can't, the people, the, the church is for Christians. We know that it's for the edification of the body, uh, for the work of ministry. We know that a non-believer can't even say amen uh, to, to a prayer in a church. And so we need to, I, I trust and believe that God is drawing individuals and they are coming to the church. So, you know, that word seek, I just go, well, I, I think the Lord is drawing individuals to, to put them in those pews and invite them before conversion so that they can hear the gospel. So we don't want to just say, you can't come unless you're converted. No, we want to say, uh, uh, come, but I'm not going to, by any means, try to sell you Christianity. I'm going to, I'm going to wound you with the law and I'm going to show you the hope of Christ. And that, that is historically what has always occurred in, in church revival uh, and faithful church history. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure it's a Spurgeon quote, or it's in the spirit of Spurgeon anyway, if it's not him, where he says, you, know, you, can, uh, you can get people into your church with a circus, but you need to, you'll need to keep that circus up if you want them to stay, if that's what's keeping them yes. there. Yeah. What you win them with is what you win them to. Yeah. Kind of sentiment. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly the same mm -hmm. sentiment. Mm -hmm. I like what the way Spurgeon talks about circuses, though. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So Dale, Dale, you've mentioned how you're you're working on on equipping the uh, the members of your house church and the uh, the other uh, churches in your network to be uh, this uh, to do the sort of the personal one to one relational evangelism gospel presentation. But you've got uh, you've got sort of larger ambitions than that as well in terms of outreach. Can you tell us about? Uh, 
this mail the gospel campaign that you've uh, you've embarked on? Yeah, it's one of those campaigns that once we came up with the idea, we thought, why hasn't anybody done this? Um, and we've actually had several people, even from like Ray Comfort's ministry, they're like, why didn't we do this? And um, and so we, I'm an evangelist. I mean, I probably show the gospel a couple times a week. Um, I intentionally go to different barber shops so that I get stuck in someone's barber chair that I could show the gospel with an individual. And so I... Uh, I've realized in my own proclamation of the gospel, needing tools. What you'll realize quickly if you've done it enough is that you never have enough time. And so you're in the middle of a gospel proclamation, you're listening to their story, you're sharing the gospel, and you wish that you could leave them with something, um, a website, a card, or something. And so uh, I originally came up with this idea because I wanted to create a, a thorough gospel presentation uh, that could be read in about 10 to 15 minutes because most gospel presentations are either, you know, too long or they're too short or they're doom and gloom or they're Jesus loves everything about you or they're terribly designed or whatever it may be. And so I, uh, I put together a, a gospel tract that essentially was a, a, a very thorough presentation of the gospel. And then I started thinking, why can't we just mail these to people? And so I was using them in my own personal ministry. And this is a, a copy of one of them here, but they're beautiful four by six, beautiful paper, gold foiling on the front, uh, scripture index in the back, uh, theologically sound, reviewed by several uh, gentlemen that are friends of mine that uh, we have a theological advisory board. Half of them have their PhD in theology. And so we really scrutinized this text, making sure that it was a faithful presentation of a bad news, good news gospel. And then we thought, okay, we want to make these beautiful because again, I don't know what it is about gospel tracks, especially through the 90s and early 2000s. It was like, let's, let's tell people that this is the most important message on earth and let's just print it on the crappiest paper we could find. And so that was really what was going on is that these tracks were so ugly and they were so corny and they were so weird. And so we wanted to create something that was beautiful, that was theologically accurate. And then the big thing is that we wanted to make them mailable. Um, and so in a world where digital, if you send me an email, I promise you, I'm probably not going to read it because I already have a thousand emails that I need to read that I don't read. And so if you send me something in the mail, I promise you that I will open it. Um, and so that, that is a different shift. And so we, we thought about mail and we wanted to basically create an opportunity for any individual to mail the gospel to another person anywhere in the world. Now, we just launched with the United States two weeks ago. We're opening up international in about a week. Uh, we also sell these tracks as, as uh, uh, you can buy them in track packs. You can just have your car or in your backpack to carry around. Um, but the big thing is... Uh, you basically can go to mailthegospel.org. You can enter your information. You can choose a tract. And then you could enter the mailing address of anybody you want to mail it to. You can personalize it. And this is one thing that I, I, I want to emphasize. We want you to personalize it because we don't want this to replace evangelism. We want to nurture evangelism. And so when you have 90% of the church that doesn't do evangelism at all, we need a kind of a step between no evangelism to I'm preaching the gospel out in the public. And so this becomes a unique middle ground for someone to say, uh, hey, Chris, it was great to see you at that conference this last weekend. I know we got a chance a little bit to talk about the church and talk about your past. Hey, this is a little bit clear of a, clearer of a message than we talked about over dinner. Um, it's the gospel. If you have a question about it, I'd love to chat with you. Give me a call. So you can personalize this gospel message. We'll send it out on a little personalized note. You can include a Bible for like 10 bucks, a full beautiful ESV Bible. Um, 
you can, uh, and we'll send it out in a, in a package. You can also, which is fascinating because we have two, two weeks of data now, um, you can also send it anonymously. Now that is kind of a unique option for a lot of people because you have relational tension that might be going on uh, in your family. You might've shared the gospel with someone already. They already rejected it. You think that if you share it again, they're just gonna reject it just because you said it. Um, and so 50% of all the people that have mailed the gospel, which is about a thousand people in the last two weeks, have sent it anonymously. So it shows that there's a lot of relational wounds that are going on. Um, and so we're just learning right now about what's going on but, uh, and how this is going to work for the church and, and how this tool is going to be used. It's not just for people who are scared to share the gospel. It's actually for guys like me too. Because there's, the reality is, is that I don't have a lot of time to go talk to my friends that I care about in North Carolina and Virginia and the UK. And, and there's just a moment that I just go, hey, I just want to mail you something. I want to send the gospel to you. So for those that are evangelistic at heart, it becomes a tool that you can use, that you can use it year, you know, multiple times per year. I mean, we send Christmas cards to people, uh, you know, the ladies especially do. And, and I go, if you can do that, then you should, you should be able to mail the gospel to people. And so um, we're, it's brand new. We're excited about it. We made sure that everything was beautifully designed. We think that Christians should be the ones that have the best design because we understand beauty. We understand truth. I, I'm tired of so many Christians having garbage design and we have junk movies and you know weak media and bad music and whatever it may be. Christians need to really step up their game to actually have beautiful design. So we wanted to really emphasize that, that we went on there, had the best designers do the, the tracks, the best designers do the website, uh, the best designers do the packaging, everything we wanted to do that was not lacking theological integrity. So that, that's the mission at mailthegospel.org. And, and we're just hoping and praying that, that people use it as a tool uh, and get it out there. Great. And uh, Dale, another project you've worked on recently is uh, a book you've, you've recently released called The Manliness of Christ, how the masculinity of Jesus eradicates effeminate Christianity. We were very intrigued by that title, certainly. And one of the quotes, uh, one of the quotes in the book says, "Jesus is the most masculine man to walk the earth. In fact, if you hate masculinity, you will hate the biblical Jesus." And um, you know, right away when I when I was looking at your book, I thought, with all the the cultural battles uh, happening right now, you know, whether it's critical race theory, queer theory, abortion, what have you. What compelled you to write on this topic? And we, we were sharing a little bit uh, just before we started our recording that this book flowed out of you quite naturally. So I'm just wondering, um, yeah, why, why write on this uh, topic right now? Yeah, it actually happened in some postgraduate work uh, I was doing uh, with Dr. Owen Strand, actually, if you guys know of him. And um, he was, we we're doing some Christology uh, work and I needed to write basically a thesis on this topic of the masculinity of Jesus. Obviously, Christianity in the West is so effeminate. It's so, it's so effeminate, you don't even know it. Uh, we're bathed in it. We're like fish. We don't even know we're wet. I mean, it's that bad. Um, the, the way we sing songs, the whiny voices of the, of the worship singers, the you know, sway your hips to Jesus Christianity, the, you know, even the, the men's programs are just women's programs refabricated for men. I mean, there's just so much of it going on. I, I think about the book that came out by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, um, which again, I just go, I read the book and it's actually like, I would say it's a fairly accurate representation of that dimension of Jesus. The, the problem is, is it's one dimensional. 
And it's, it's the version that this uh, era of Christians absolutely, you know, loves. They love effeminate Christianity. And so uh, we want this soft, spoken, you know, passive uh, Christ that just really loves people without truth. And it's just this, th- that's who the culture wants. And I'm not saying that that's exactly what Dane did in that treatment, but it was one dimensional. And so I was tired of just this Roman Catholic version of Christianity that had blush on his cheeks and his eyebrows were tweezed. And, and we had this view of Christ that was just this, you know, soft and lowly lamb and, and there was no power. And so I, I thought, I wanted to look at the masculine attributes of Jesus. So I did a, a biblical theological study across the New Testament uh, of Jesus and started marking out the boldness of Christ, the fearlessness of Christ, the intensity of Christ, the resolve of Christ, um, and, and really seeing a much more uh, robust version of Christ. And, and you realize when you compare it, when you combine the two, it, it creates an incredible uh, dimension uh, of manhood that, you, that, that n- none of us can fulfill. And you, you, when you take the, 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 the elements of the gentle and lowly with the masculinity of Christ and the boldness and the rawness and the roughness and the toughness even of Christ, when you think about Jesus knew what he was doing when he was going to the cross, when he knew what was going to happen, uh, when he knew about the beatings, when he knew about the wrath of God, when he knew about uh, the, the loss of relationships. And in, in Matthew, I forgot the passage off the top of my head. It says that he's walking out in front as they're on their way to Jerusalem. And it's this, this, I'm on my way to do my duty and I know I'm about to die. It's like World War II, you know, walking out, knowing what you're about to do, intense resolve to take out the enemy. And we just don't see that side of Christianity today. And we don't transmit that version of Christ to the men today. Uh, we don't understand the kingdom perspective, the, the dominance perspective, the dominion perspective. And so there's just so much there that I tried to capture. And then I also wrote this book for men because uh, men don't have a lot of time. Uh, and it's very rare for a guy to go, yeah, I'm excited to read that 400 page book. And so I, I wrote this book, it's like 90 pages or 80 pages, and it can be read in like an hour and a half. And we put it up and I just didn't know what to expect, but we've sold out of our first print run. We ordered more and it's just, uh, we have more in stock now, but it's just been shocking. And so I think it just was the a, a right timing and the Lord used it. And uh, we're just excited to have it out. That's One right. of the things that I think we're confronting, especially today that uh, certainly um, sticks in our craw here is the is the notion that, uh, that we cannot ever be confrontational we can't confront culture we can't we we can't even celebrate roe v wade um as a victory um everything has to be nuanced and ironic and softened and 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 lathered and smothered and flanneled and uh, otherwise you're not being christian and so this whole this whole dimension of i mean when you consider jesus confrontations with false teaching with his confrontation with herod with his confrontation with pontius pilate um, and this whole dimension of being ready and willing to courageously speak, confront evil, confront wickedness, address things head on, this is almost a kind of um, social blasphemy in the modern church. Mm-hmm. Well, it's this weird thing that you go, 
we think that Christ's command is love your enemies is have no enemies. Um, it, it's this weird, um, again, like non-confrontational uh, position of Jesus. I, I remember seeing this gentleman, uh, a black gentleman walk into uh, a drag queen, queen story hour and he's a believer. This guy's a strong, bold Christian man. And he walks up and he absolutely condemns the wickedness that's going on. He doesn't cuss. He doesn't hurt people physically, but he stands boldly. He stands uh, loudly. He stands uh, passionately, clearly, but with self-control, condemning the acts, sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus Christ, telling them to turn from their sin. And there was people that are like, this isn't the way. This isn't the way that you, that you deal with issues like this. You know, the, the more nuanced uh, argument. And, and so we have to remember that, uh, you know, G Jesus doesn't approach people like this. You know, are you, are you aware that you're sinning? No, he, he invokes this like aggressive, intense, cutting language. He insults, convicts, condemns uh, those people that are actually standing against his father. I mean, he, to their face, he calls them hypocrites and liars. He calls them, you know, brood of vipers. He calls them children of Satan, sons of hell, a wicked and adulterous uh, generation, whitewashed tombs, uh, blind guides. I mean, this is, this is the language of Jesus and the intensity. You know, he's braiding a whip to, to make a ruckus in the reality of, of the, 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 you know, the, um, the blasphemy of the, the, the moments of the temple. I mean, this is the Jesus that we don't hear about in modern Christianity. And you need to put it together with a, a true sound biblical theological comprehension of Christology. And you start to realize, wow, we need, we need to transmit this to more men. Hmm. Yeah. Dale, that's, uh, I, th I think you're you're absolutely right. There is a real a real need. Uh, you've testified that uh, if sales are any indication, there's a real hunger for mm -hmm. this uh, yeah. this kind of That's teaching. Right. Uh, as we uh, look towards wrapping up here, this wouldn't be a podcast for cultural reformation if we didn't work to uh, alienate a few people. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, I want I want to try to bring this full circle. We started out with the, with the Great Commission and what, uh, what animates and motivates us uh, and uh, the work that you're doing. And I wanted to bring that back uh, to the beginning and to the end uh, and talk about the, uh, the foundational eschatology that, uh, that you and, uh, and we, sh we share. Uh, and that, uh, for those of you who are keeping score at home, that's called post-millennialism. Yeah. Yes, this whole notion, yeah, Dale, yeah. that um, the Great Commission implies, um, because of Christ's total authority, he seems to imply a discipling of nations, all kinds of discipleships, a, a teaching mandate, and therefore a degree of cultural victory. Isn't that heresy? Uh, um, <laughs> That's the point. Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> yeah, um, and so this was... Uh, this was a major shift for me, guys. Uh, coming out of the dispensational-esque uh, eschatology for many years, uh, realizing that we had a retreative, uh, checked out, um, you know, we don't, we don't polish brass on a seeking ship uh, eschatology, where essentially it was gospel only, uh, you know, save, your, save yourself kind of moment, save those people around you, but that's it. And there was no 
transmission of the kingdom in any tangible format whatsoever. Uh, once I started studying and realizing, uh, once I, once I started looking at Revelation, looking at Matthew 24, understanding uh, from R.C. Sproul, actually, of a partial predisposition uh, that these things were not about the end of the world, that, that was really the gateway into looking at the kingdom in a different perspective. Um, it was also looking at scriptures like the Great Commission, that all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. Uh, and if he's a king, he's reigning now, reigning and sitting at the right hand of the Father, um, uh, this idea that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, if these things are true, if the, if we look throughout church history, which, uh, you know, for the longest time, I wanted to get a doctorate in church history. I love church history. But if we look at the population growth, not just in numbers, but also in ratio for from the beginning of time, that we're seeing the church grow in ratio to world population, why would we expect that to stop? Like why we're at 20% probably now of the pop world population is professing to be Christian. Like why would we expect that God is going to just stop doing that? Um, wh why would we think that the great commission is going to fail again, this rapture, imminent madness, desire for the, the, the return of Christ. Uh, you know, it, this is, I started to see was an absolute, um, delusion of the, of church history. And there was, you know, what, 1600, 1800 predictions of Christ's return and every generation is living this way. And, and then once I started reading through the old Testament and Isaiah two, and, uh, you know, reading the Psalms again, I started seeing the connection, the biblical theological connection, uh, of, and, and, you know, I got a chance to, to study Hebrew and understand Hebraic language and, and figures of speech. And that really helped me grasp this big picture of post-millennialism. And so I see, yes, an eschatology of victory. I see that, that uh, a multi-generational perspective. Um, these are huge things. And so when I look at the Great Commission, I see the Great Commission as the starting point. It is the it, conversion is the beginning of the church doing this kingdom work. Uh, and so it, it's the tip of the spear, but it's not the whole spear. Um, it needs to transmit into education and in, into politics and into the way we live our, our lives daily, uh, you know, through uh, media and government and all those things. Uh, but I think that it is absolutely, there's so much that the church we don't realize is connected to a pessimistic eschatology. Um, and it, it, I'm, I told you as we started the show that I'm a bit of a, a cage stage about it. I'm still pretty fresh um, about a year in is that I, I'm, I'm so passionate right now about it because I'm realizing that the connections mm -hmm. of why we are the way we are and how they are connected to that historic eschatology of the last 200 years. Well, now you've crossed the Rubicon. There's no going back now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> was that to, You're was in that, trouble now. <laughs> was that similar to your experience, your post-mill conversion experience, Joe? Yeah, some years. I grew up in uh, very much that uh, premillennial dispensational tradition. There's and uh, Not many people 50 and under who didn't. Yeah, so, yeah. and uh, uh, encountering... Um, the first the Puritan vision and then the reformational perspective um, you know and it, it did have a, a transformative impact on my broader outlook and um, how I thought about the gospel how I thought about the Great Commission how I thought about the meaning of the kingdom of God mm -hmm. wonderful well Dale Partridge it uh, it has been a real uh, a real pleasure to uh, to get to know you to have you on the show we uh, we pray for the success of the Mail the Gospel mm -hmm. campaign. Where, where can people get your book, The Manliness of Christ? Yeah, you can pick it up uh, 
basically anywhere the books are sold. But if you buy it from us at relearn.org forward slash man, um, you know, it really supports our ministry. Obviously, more of the proceeds go to uh, supporting what we do. Uh, but yeah, relearn.org. Um, and yeah, you can listen to our podcast at Real Christianity and follow us on social media. Basically, uh, anywhere where there's social, we're there. Yeah, terrific. Well, all right, go and uh, go into all the world there, and may God bless you. It's been uh, it's been a real blessing to uh, to chat. Hope to see you in Phoenix sometime in uh, in um, Arizona, Arizona sometime. Anyway, yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, amen. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast. Well, from all of us here at the Ezra Institute and the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, we remind you that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory. We'll, we'll uh, look forward to being with you again.